This episode is brought to you by Kanye West and his inspirational quote, She's so precious, with the peer pressure. Couldn't afford a car, so she named her daughter Alexis. Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, my people. Hello, my people. Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, where I welcome people with remarkable stories for amazingly vulnerable conversations. This episode was just a blockbuster of emotions for me. No joke, I've been wanting to have this conversation with Kenneth for years. As he's one of those people where I'm like, when I grow up, I want to be like Dr. Montague, man. One of the coolest, most authentic people I've ever known. Kenneth Montague is a Toronto-based dentist, as well as an art collector and the founding director of Wedge Curatorial Projects a non-profit arts organization that helps to promote African-Canadian artists. Montague is the owner of Word of Mouth Dentistry, a dynamic and innovative dental clinic in downtown Toronto. Open since 1992, Montague's patient base includes many local and international artists, musicians, and actors. He's been voted Best Dentist by readers of Now Magazine many times and endeavors to treat all patients and staff with care love and respect which i can confirm because i've been going there since 2008 and i love it i don't think i know a lot of people that love to go to the dentist i would live at that dentistry office i (laughs) I love it so much dr montague is a founding member of the university of toronto faculty of medicine's summer mentorship program which provides an intimate educational experience for high school students of black and indigenous ancestry For his ongoing work with emerging artists and creatives, Montague received an honorary doctorate from OCAD University in 2016. He is a true trailblazer. My friends, please enjoy this episode like I know you will. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast. I have here the unbreakable, the unmistakable, the highly capable... Dr. M. Kenneth Montague, the legend, the master of disaster, the owner, the architect, the king, the emperor of Bloor and Bathurst, Wedge, word of mouth. Oh my God, I am so excited to have you here. How are you, Dr. M.? I'm great. You forgot the king of the dental thing, but you know, yeah, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But here I am. Yeah, great to be on uh, on your show. Thank you, brother. Listen, all every time that I was thinking about the podcast when I was starting it, I was like, I wish Dr. Montague said yes to come to my program. I hadn't even asked you, but I want to say, I want to start this telling you why I invited you. This is very important to me. I have a thing with people who have been able to do it well without losing their authenticity and their essence in many areas of life. And I find that you have proven that you can do your job well and be incredible outside of the office in many different ways. You're an, nah, like a cool, now, man. cool husband, cool dad, incredible dentist, boss, like husband, member of the community. In my day, in my books... And I told that to, to your staff in the Christmas meeting where, where I went and performed. I'm like, 
you're a modern day hero in my books. You know, like oh, you're just thanks, one of those guys that it, like it always bugs me when people lose their essence and and like kind of sacrifice their authenticity at the expense of their job. And I know a lot of jobs are are stressful, but just like LBJ, LeBron James, more than an athlete, you're hey. more than a dentist, and I really admire you. Ah, thanks, Stefan. I think I know you're just looking for your free root canal, but that's okay, man. <laughs> and I, my white But I appreciate that. I want free my, root canal. See, my Invisalign yeah. again. There it is. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's why I really wanted to have you. I, I'm looking for the secrets, all your tips. Uh, I really admire you as a boss, as an entrepreneur. And this is what I told you when I invited you. I don't know a lot of people who love going to their dentist. And I love going to to visit you and and the family in many ways because I'm from Costa Rica, as you know. You, you're you're from your parents are from Jamaica. Yeah. You you were born in Windsor, Ontario, but in many ways you you're, you're Jamaican. Yeah. And I met you in 2008. I was at U of T through my my good friend P Love, Patrick Love. All right. Shout out to P Love, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. And. It became going to to your office to the dentistry to word of mouth, like a home away from home in many ways. Wow, it's like you guys saw me going from U of T finance to then joining the <laughs> bank to then quitting the bank to then getting married to then uh, like so. comedy to then speaking and yeah, yeah. you were a shirt and tie guy then yeah. full on shirt tie dress well, actually no one. Wears a shirt and tie anymore, but that's COVID. But hey, you know, yeah. but you, you really, I saw the change. I saw the change. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I always say in these episodes that I'm more interested in the process than in the result. Obviously, you're a very accomplished person. You've done incredible things, but I want to, I want to understand where this came from. And we're going to start with your childhood here. You, I know you were born in Windsor, Ontario, parents from Jamaica. What was your childhood like? Hmm. What a question. Um, I really, I had a, a great childhood in terms of um, love, comfort, uh, care, you know, those those essential things that we all need. The things that you're giving your little son now, because uh, I know you to be that guy, Stefan. So the, the warm environment, the kind of acceptance and unconditional love, we certainly had that. There were three kids. Uh, I was the last of three. Uh, my parents were immigrants, like so many of us were in a country full of immigrants, you know, but the difference here, I think, was that, you know, they were among the first Jamaicans uh, in Canada, certainly in Windsor. We were probably the second family in a town that already had over 100,000 people. So you can imagine, you really feel like an island, you know? I yeah. Mean, you know, I was the only black kid in the class the whole way up, right through dental school. I mean, it was uh, an experience that in a lot of ways shapes you. I think, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that, uh, kind of learned early how to win friends and influence people, but it was like a survival tactic. You know, it was one of those things that, uh, and maybe that's the way comedy is for a lot of comedians too. It's like, you know, you, you were bullied or, you know, you wanted to be popular and, you know, you, you find a way of, um, kind of relating to people that, uh, kind of, you know, you give it out and you get it back. You either go that way or you're angry all the time and you're carrying this thing around with you. Because, you know, when I think about it now, there was a lot of trauma. I mean, there were some really traumatic events as a little kid around around race because, you know, there was there was just nobody else. So yeah. it was easy to be picked on and so forth, you know. But I'm over it now, you know. But but 
it, listen though, it was tough. You know, I mean, I gotta say that uh, these these traumatic kind of events they shape you. Yeah, you know, they really do. Identity wise, in my books and in my experience, because I, I I relate a, a little bit about what you said. My parents were Peruvian, are Peruvian. My whole family's Peruvian, but I was born and raised in Costa Rica. Oh, right. And I, Ethnically Peruvian, but culturally Costa Rican. Like you grew up well, that's the thing. I identified as Costa Rican. Yes. But in many ways, I wasn't because I had different words. My parents are Peruvian. I was kind of not raised in a Costa Rican home, per se. Interesting. And then at age 10, I moved to El Salvador. Then at age 14, I moved to Mexico. Then at age 16, I went to boarding school in Quebec. And then I came to Toronto. So in many ways, I was really good at adapting, but I always felt like I didn't really fit in. And right. I had like a great childhood. I'm not, I'm not complaining here. And obviously there's bullying. There's like all these things that shape you. My question is, did you ever feel like you were kind of like canadian at your school but then you had to be jamaican at home or yeah. with with your cousins or when you went back to jamaica you had to put on a different accent oh, yeah well you're talking about code shifting now which is yeah you know you become a master code shifter if you're going between cultures all the time so you're exactly right i mean i i literally could go into mipatuan tingan tingan you know spend me some you know in jamaica and, and ting, you know but and then you know be Another guy completely, you know, in Windsor and even within Windsor, I think more interestingly, you know, I'm the black guy that, you know, grew up listening to as much, you know, Aerosmith, you know, and Van Halen as I did Bob Marley and like, you know, Yellow Man and, you know, all that stuff. So I, that was always funny. Like I always think of the idea of music and using music as a sort of a trope of my identity thinking about it because... Like I can tell you, you know, the joke of it is I was, you know, my friend Rob Osborne and myself were like the only two black guys that would go to like, you know, a hard rock concert. Like we'd go to a concert like Megadeth, you know, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like just killer. And like all the girls are coming up to you going, hey, can you guys get us backstage? We're not roadies. We're fans, you know, and all and all the white guys come up to you like, hey, you guys got some herb? Can you can we buy? Can we score some off you? You know, and I'm like, we're not dealers. We're fans. OK, you know, so, you know, that's like the black guy at the rock country. Yeah. You know? So it was really, you know, it's a comedy when you think of it now. But then it was, you know, you really do feel like an island, you know, but now it's a great thing because now, you know, my record collection is like heavy metal and, you know, classic 70s reggae. And because you have that mindset, as you know, you're open to things. So, you know, it's wider than that because from the start, I was into this and I was into this. So now it's jazz and it's over here with like, you know, completely, you know, avant-garde, yes. you know, alternative music. And over here, we're on some classical and over here. And you know this because you come to our demo office and one day uh, it's Nirvana, one day it's Sade, you know. So one day I it's think, Pharrell, and one day it's Pharrell. You know, actually, most days it's Pharrell. He's my boy, <laughs> but you know, all right, it's only Pharrell. Yeah, but yeah. still, still, um, that learning to kind of um, um, understand, uh, you know, where everyone's coming from as a survival thing serves you well. Uh, in my life, has served me well. Certainly, as a dentist, like I. I feel like because I experienced so much, I 
wanted to be on that football team. So I learned how to, you know, throw the, I never really learned how to throw that well or catch that well, but I got on the team. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, never played, but no, you know, <laughs> sat on the bench for four years, but I, you know, you, you're on the football team and I'm on the French club and I'm learning guitar so I can be in the band and I'm, you know, on the debate club and, and you've got the Jamaican immigrant parents that are like, you know, you gotta be a professional, you know, because yeah. they faced, you can imagine the kind of uh-huh. discrimination they face. So they want their kids, you know, you know, this is the immigrant story, right? So you want your kids yeah. to have their own business and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, people can call you doctor. And so I think like all of those things, learning and seeing, it serves me well as a dentist now. Yeah, people come in you. and, you know, you're a golfer, but I know a little bit about golf. You're into your music and, oh, wow, you know, my dentist knows Megadeth. You know, it's like it, you know, so now we have a demo practice full of, uh, you know, musicians and entertainment people. We have uh, lots of people in advertising and design. We've got fashionistas and we've got, you know, Jamaican immigrant families that yeah. you know, they can relate to their dentists. It's you know? a so, melting pot. It's a beautiful yeah, melting pot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just have the one guy from Costa Rica. That's it. You know, <laughs> uh, that's the only one that's allowed, really. You know, yeah, but, uh, yeah that's, you know, <laughs> in, in many ways. Yeah. When we go into the, the topic of fatherhood, I'm going to tell you how has this impact, how you're going to raise your kids. But that's oh, we're, okay. we're going to get there because now that I'm a father, I'm thinking about that a lot. Now. Yeah. But I want to I want to ask you because as I walk through through your dentistry office and word of mouth, it, it's it's Nirvana, it's Pharrell, it, it's Jay Z, it's it's uh, it's Fuji, it's Fujis, it's it's a lot of these things, and then and then there's art. You like you feel like it's an art gallery, and it's like you feel in a cultural experience. Yeah, Everyone treats you well. Everyone's smiling with great teeth. It's intimidating. To uh, you know, uh, we're preaching it. You gotta, yeah, yeah. you gotta have it. And then, yeah. and then, um, and then you realize what? I'm at a dentistry office. This isn't. This isn't very normal. And that's in many ways why I think I kind of fit there. Yeah. I, it's you it's are kind of challenging sure. the yeah, status yeah. quo in many ways, and I kind of like that, which is what I'm doing. I feel with with Malpensando and Juan, my business partner, and my wife in many ways. It's like I never really fit in in all these areas. I'm gonna build my own place, you know. I'm gonna build my own little happy place, and I think you've you've really accomplished that. So going back to now, we want to go into into fatherhood. You got you got Eli, you got Theo. Four and six years old right now. Shout out to your wife Sarah. And I I would be lying if I said parenthood hasn't changed me. You know, I think I keep my essence, my authenticity, but sometimes I just want to cry thinking that something could happen to Liam, you know? And yeah. and and he's just like sitting there. Yeah. Sometimes I think about my dad, I, I I don't want to compare myself to my dad, but I'm comparing myself to my dad. I'm like, oh my God, what if I don't have the money my dad had to send my kid to boarding school or like to give him a good education? Or maybe if I give him everything, will he come out spoiled? Or maybe if I don't give him anything, will, will he uh, think that I don't love him? So yeah. I'm just going through all kinds of scenarios in my mind. And, and then and I'm he's like, looking at you going... I just want some milk, all right? <laughs> just crying. Why are you worried? Yeah. I just need milk here. You yeah, know? and then my but... wife has has her her own movies in her head, yeah. but it's it's all in many ways uh, affected and impacted by the way that that we were raised. Absolutely. So so how has Jamaica? How yeah. has your parents? 
your background, Windsor, Ontario, and, and being raised in Canada affected your, your parenthood style? And, and how has it affected you as a person? Well, that's a complicated question, a good question. But, um, you know, I well, for starters, uh, I feel like I'm unique in that I really waited a long time. I'm in my 50s. I'm an old guy. You know, I have my first kid, you know, you know, at 50, after 50. So you look 35. I appreciate that. 33. Come on, man. Come on. All right. All right. right. Um, I'm 33. So you look 35. There it is. All right. All right. I'll take it. Big brother still. Um, But I I have to say that um, being older as a father, uh, has been good for me. And I think generally, generally it's a good thing. I mean, for me, I needed to go through, you know, many years of learning on my own. Uh, and you know, it's not so much, you know, uh, sowing your oats and all that business. It's more that I had a lot of interests, as we mentioned, and I, and I really was, you know, desperate to sort of try things, travel, uh, see the world, uh, art became a passion early on, and um, you know I'm a big art collector now. The focus is on black artists, and again, it's like kind of a reflection of yourself, and and kind of figuring out your own identity. And so I was on that tour, that journey for many, many years before I met my wife. Yeah. So you know, I think that that age and life difference could be really problematic, but actually, it can be a great thing because, of course. You know, there's a bit of a generational split there, but I learned so much from her and she learns from me. And not just experience, just different things you go yeah. through generationally. And I think all of this has been brought to bear. You know, as a parent, uh, I think we're a good team, you know, and uh, the kind of worries that I have aren't the same as a younger dad like you. You might think of yourself as an old dad, but you're a really young dad from my perspective. So, you know... We don't worry as old dads as much about the financial stuff because you've been working for a few years. Yes. You know, you own a place. You have, a, in my case, I own an office. I own a home. I mean, the financial stuff's in pretty good shape to have kids. It's not the worry that my 20 something, 30 something friends have. So, yes. you know, that's a big thing. You know? That's a big thing. It's a trade off, right? Because then you have less energy as you yes. know, and you're going to see more as in the next few years. The kid wants you to get down on your knees and play Legos. It's not like I can just bend over and no data, get down. We need you to engage with us, data. You know, so it, it's a little harder for the creaky need 50 year old, you know, so yes. that part is harder and there's, there's a trade off. But in the end, I think the experience, uh, the confidence, uh, what you've learned along the way and certainly um, you, you know, your sense of, um, you know, identity yourself is, is much more in place as you, as you go along in life. And I think that, that makes me a better father. All of those issues we talked about earlier around, you know, race and difference and all that. Of course, it never leaves you, but you have a much, a much better sense of it, I think, as you get older, because you, I like you put that. it in perspective, you know? Yeah. I like yeah. that. Uh, it seems like you have a better grasp of it. When, yeah. when I quit my job in 2017, immediately myself and my business partner were like, we want to be famous, you know? And we want to be on Netflix. We want to travel. We want to tour, blah, 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 blah. And as it's been four years now that, that we quit our corporate jobs and 
it we don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to be famous anymore. If it, if it happens, that's cool too, you know. But I think that it's evolving. My my identity and my my need for attention ha- has evolved in many ways. Now I want to be a, a great dad. I want to be a great husband. I, I want to be a great speaking coach. I want to be a great keynote speaker. I still want to be an incredible comedian. But I find that as the layers peel, you get to, to more of the core and you're like, I just want to do more of what I love to do, you know? You talk about satisfaction. Yes. Job satisfaction. I mean, you know, everyone says happiness and happiness is important, but happiness can be fleeting in life. Happiness yeah, it's, like, it's, it's sometimes there, not it's as not recurring. Yeah, you know, you're a, a dad with and a well-being, young kid, you know? I, I want the well-being yeah, as well, you not know? Not every day is going to be happy, but you want the satisfaction exactly. in your life. Like, am I doing something that brings me joy? Exactly. And, and I think in your case, you know, you, you're a people person. You know, you like people. A hundred percent. You like helping people. You like, uh, you know, as my late father said, lifting as we rise. You like to pull the Help. people up as you're coming up. I yeah. mean, if you're hell bent on being that number one comedian and you're going to do it, you know, it's, it's very hard to be, yeah. you know, taking care of other people, your wife, your kid, everything. Yeah. You, you know, you're not that guy. So you have to be true to yourself, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's well-being, it's satisfaction. I want to be doing what I'm doing right now in 40 years, you know, and it's okay if I don't do it because I'll know that I'm going to be li- living authentically, I, I hope, yeah. in 40 years and still be pursuing whatever it is that gives me satisfaction at that time i noticed that i noticed that one of the things that gives you great satisfaction is art and you created wedge curatorial projects in 1997 you're the director of it and i actually went on on um on on the website and i saw jorian charlton collection yeah oh beautiful curated by emily uh croning yeah i did my homework what about that she's also a patient of ours too yeah oh my god beautiful beautiful yeah um for our for our listeners just to give you some context so so wedge is a privately owned contemporary art collection focusing on exploring black identity and i love the mission check this out to provide a platform for black artists through exhibitions programming and publications tell me a little about a little bit about wedge and where did that idea come from okay well you know uh as a kid as a 10 year old uh i was lucky enough to have parents though they were immigrant parents and they were struggling they also were educated and they were really into art so you know my dad who was a teacher was working on a graduate degree and we lived in windsor the southernmost canadian city right across the river from Detroit. So, you know, Detroit, as you can imagine. Yeah, great cultural, you know, uh, city. So we, you know, a bastion of black culture. So, you know, we got to hear that Motown music. We got to hear, you know, 70s soul. Detroit Pistons, the bad boys. Detroit Pistons, I grew up with all that. Isaiah Thomas, you know, it was was great. So, you know, as a 10-year-old, my parents took me to the Detroit Historical Society and the DIA, the Detroit Institute of Arts, Great murals by Diego Rivera. Like, I remember as a kid wow. seeing these, you know, incredible, all of this stuff affects you as a 10 year old. And I knew even then when I saw an image of a older black couple, sophisticated, wearing this, you know, fur coats and a white wall tire as a Cadillac in front of these Harlem brownstones, I'm like, that's not what I'm seeing 
in my life because I'm growing up seeing these comedies that we love from then. Sanford and Son, Red Fox, uh, you know, the What's Happening Gang, all these sort of like, like, they're really showing like black folks as buffoons. And we're laughing, but we're like, we don't live like that. Our family's not like this, you know? <laughs> so I'm kind of sitting there going like, there's another way that black folks live, you know? And I was seeing this through art. And so it got to be a mission. By the time I got, you know, I was 21 now, I'm in dental school and I started to go to art openings, stuff when I was at University of Toronto, where I would be, you know, already buying, you know, emerging artists work when I was a student, you know, with wow. whatever money I had. So I was always wanting to have a longer relationship with artwork than seeing it on the wall in a gallery or in a magazine. There was no internet then. And it was like, I started to very organically move into kind of collecting. I think a collector is a collector. Like I was collecting seashells when I was a kid and bottle caps and salt and pepper shakers. And when it came to art, it was a much more a personal thing though. It was like a lot of portraits and, and figurative work and work that reflected who I was, you know? Uh, and so that morphed into a gallery, a commercial gallery that I actually started in my home in a wedge shaped space. No so it was way. the wedge gallery. And uh, that was one of the first loft conversions in Toronto around Bathurst and Queen. And, um, and then after four or five years of that, it became a thing. Like I was selling artwork and I was working as a dentist Monday to Friday, having these openings on a weekend. And I realized I really wasn't into the selling of art. I, I, that wasn't the thing. It was the storytelling and learning about these artists and sharing it with people. So I realized I was more of a curatorial mind and a collector mind than a commercial gallerist sort of mind. So that's an important thing, as you know, to recognize who you are and that's what you're doing. self-awareness. Yeah. So I, I let that part go and start, you know, took the gallery out of my home and came up with this more nomadic concept, the Wedge Project, the Wedge Curatorial Project, which goes around and, and, and works with other institutions as small as a little nonprofit, you know, in a, in a, in a building with a, a bunch of little art spaces up to the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum. I did a big show there and took stuff to the United States to, uh, you know, big institutions there. I've, I've given talks about art at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, at the Studio Museum in Harlem in New York, in London at, uh, the Courtauld. So, you know, it becomes this, passion that you know i think a bit like that malcolm gladwell thing you know with outliers where yes you know you put your ten thousand hours in and you you get to be an expert at something i never went to school for art but the particular artists that i'm into i i have a lot of books i did a lot of reading i met them i went and did artist visits and studio visits and you know because i did this over 20 plus years now you kind of get to be an expert at the thing yeah and so it, it was a hobby you know, dentistry still being my main gig, but the hobby has become, you know, a viable career path as well. And now I have two things. I have this nonprofit art collective. It's a, it's a kind of a, the curatorial project, which is about emerging young artists. And we got government grants and the bank will give us money for shows. And, and that's, that's a, that's a not for profit. And then I have the wedge collection, which is a privately owned art collection. So it's, two streams and that collection is becoming bigger and bigger now that the art market is recognizing the brilliance of these black artists that were really underknown, un, you know, under celebrated 
over so many years. And with the changing times, people are recognizing the value. So suddenly my personal collection has a, a, a much bigger value in the art market and interest from other people uh, generally around the art. So that's well, been a happy accident. You know, When I went to your house to do the, the performance of the comedy uh, at your Christmas party, yeah. I saw a lot of those art. Uh, ah right, and yeah. yeah. Were you snooping around my house? Right, you gave me the tour. Right, you, you, got, the you, tour. Got, you actually gave everyone the tour, I and did, I did. It was <laughs> such an incredible. This is the thing about you. It's it's never just what you're doing. You know, it's not just the tour at the house. It's not just going to the dentist. It's not just having a conversation. It almost feels like we're almost always traveling and honoring the people who've come before us and appreciating the intangibles in many ways which i can't even appreciate but because you're so passionate about it i'm i'm riding that wave too you know i i remember since the beginning position as desired oh yeah was that, that the, show at the rom yeah, that, yeah. that was a show at the rom and you had some at, at your remember that. Yeah, at the yeah. office oh yeah and those are black canadian photographers yeah it yeah. was it was a beautiful collection i think most of the things that i do now Obviously, I got the money makers. I got the corporate events, the public speaking, the the improv for team building. I got my own shows. I, I tour. I travel, and now I'm starting to do keynotes. But apart from that, which is the equivalent of of your dentistry, which is the money maker in many ways, or or what I do full time, I'm just starting to let myself go and pursue those things that I know are positive rabbit holes. It just gives me satisfaction. I don't know why and I don't care why. And it's just it's just beautiful. I it's it's what I want to pursue because it gives me that feeling that not a lot of other things do. Mm. For example, I love interviewing people. I love watching interviews. I love vulnerable conversations. I love documentaries. I love getting together with people. I love connecting people. Obviously, I love making people laugh, but I'm as you said, it's I'm about connecting. I'm a I'm a man of the people, you, you know. Are, you and, are. And I love raw stuff. I love vulnerability. I I, I don't even like sci-fi movies because it didn't really happen in real life. I want to hear the story of the yeah, person. You're a documentary guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm that type of guy. And and I think one of the other things that make you special is that you have something incredible going on at at, at word of mouth at your dentistry and. This is spit. You have no idea how much I've I've been wanting to to have you here just to ask uh, you about this. Now. So All right. I made, I made some notes here and and because I've been thinking about this. So I, as I said at the beginning, I love going to the dentist. I love going to your dentistry office. I love everyone who works there, and everyone who works there looks like they love working there. Well, they really do. You know? <laughs> it's talk about authenticity, but we only hire people that. Love what they do. Exactly. You know? So this yeah. is this is where I want to go. And this doesn't happen by coincidence. So right. in my view, you need to have clear company core values so that you can have a successful recruiting process. Yes. You have a lot of people that have stayed for 5, 10, 50, 20, 25 years. Nala, Nala yeah. Marcella. Yeah. They've been there for such a long time. I know there's been others. Yeah. I performed at, again at your Christmas party in 2019. And one of your great. team members... Was leaving, I think, for family reasons. She wasn't going to come back. And she was crying right. 
like like she was being like forced to to do something and it was like it, this doesn't happen by coincidence you know and my question is there has to be the like the magic sauce what do you do what do you look for when hiring a potential member of your team because this doesn't just happen yeah well it's a it's a great question and it's a easy one for me to to answer i mean we literally have a kind of a a 10 commandments of our office listed in our staff room and that sounds like a funny thing to do but many years ago uh i put this together i, I worked with a consultant um probably five or six years into owning that practice so certainly by year 2000 that's over 20 years ago now, we, we had a kind of a mantra for our office. And it's, it's this courtesy system, we call it. And the courtesy system is really like 10 points. And it's really simple stuff. It's like, you know, and, and very much taken from the sort of biblical Ten Commandments, but modified for a small, intimate uh, you know, professional office, yeah. like a den law. It's like so core it, values, core beliefs. It, it really is. So, you know, tell the truth, you know, that business, like, you know, and, and it's so easy to... And so hard sometimes. Yeah. Because, you know, you came all the way from Ajax and outside of Toronto and you've come in for your appointment and the crown isn't ready. You know, you could put the dental lab under the bus, but really it was you that wrote down the wrong date or didn't remember to call that day. And, you know, it's a very difficult thing to look a patient in yes. the eye and say that, you know, I'm very sorry. I'm sorry. I thought that this would be ready. To, I didn't realize that you were coming to. But, you know, people are never happy hearing that. But they are, so, you know, it disarms people when they're angry when you tell the truth. Yeah. They just get, they just go, you know, I'm not happy about this. But, but you know, thanks for letting me know. I'll reschedule. If you start shuffling and talking about, well, you know, I, I, that lab always is sending things really late and but. It just makes you look bad, you know? And mm -hmm. so, and then, or, or you're going to get outed because the receptionist is going to tell them it was the lab when they go to the, you know, like that it was the dentist, not the lab. So, you know, I learned really early on, tell the truth about everything with your staff, with your patients. That tell the truth thing uh, and all the other comments and all the other points on this courtesy system are not just for the dental office. They're for your life. Yeah. You know, um, there's one of the simple ones is, you know, when people come into the office in the morning, you say hi, hello, and use their name. When you're leaving the office, you say goodbye. You walk through the rooms. And even if I'm working with a patient, I want my receptionist to come through and say, hey, Dr. Montague, I'm leaving now. Is there anything I can do for you? You know, see you tomorrow. It's it's a courtesy thing, and it's small. But when you don't do it, I'm sitting there going, is she up there? It's still at the front. And, and you know, what's happening here? I'm going to bring the patient up. Is there going to be someone there? Like... Little things that keep us in touch with each other and that kind of communication um, builds not only trust, but love over time. Mutual respect. You know, if there's a conflict between two, between two people in a small office, you talk to the person you're having a conflict with first. Don't come to me as the boss. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, and that's really against what maybe people might think. And I have a lot of young people that we hire that immediately come to me. My new dental assistant. Well, they are always telling me to do this, but you said you should put the sterilizer on and do this. And <laughs> I, why are you coming to me about this? Go back to her and discuss it. You know, be polite. Let her know what your concern is. 
and you know work it out because you know what happens if you come to me then it becomes the drama triangle yeah and the drama triangle is a very very important concept for for a small office especially the drama triangle is when there is a conflict between two people or perceived conflict there's always an unseen or seen third party that that fills the role so the roles are victim that would be my dental assistant in that case i'm the victim like bad things are happening to me no one's listening to me then there's the persecutor <laughs> the person that persecutes and that's <laughs> going to be the other assistant it's like you never put the thing in the right spot like that's the person and then the third person has to be in the drama triangle the rescuer and that's going to be dr Monty. i'm going to come and rescue and you know you can't rescue both people it's not possible so, you know, I don't win. In the end, everyone's still angry. And it flips. Suddenly, I'm being too nice to one of them. And yeah. it flips. And then, the uh, you know, the other one becomes the, the victim because she's now saying she was the persecutor. But it's like, why are you siding with her? Like, and then and it flips. And then she's like, yeah, yeah. And then that victim became the persecutor. And like, <laughs> I'm still trying to be the rescuer, rescuing the other one now. And it just keeps moving around. The drama triangle is so... Uh, inefficient. (laughs) So many people live in it, in relationships and in dental offices and I just can't be part of that. Every time there's a potential conflict, I think of that drama triangle and (laughs) quickly recognize where am I at? Sometimes I'm the the persecutor, sometimes I'm the victim, or feeling like that. Sometimes I'm the rescuer. Anywhere you go, if you don't see the one, if you know the other two, you can fill it in. That person's going to be the persecutor. So... (laughs) Avoid it. Don't let that third party come in and make it a triangle. Keep it between two people. So to me, that's the most major thing that keeps the conflict down. And there's always going to be differences in an office, in any setting. I'm quiet. I'm talkative. I like these kind of activities and this kind of uh, way of getting a job done. I like these kind of activities and I... I do my thing really leisurely, but I still get it done. I do my thing really quickly. I mean, all these little things can niggle you. Yes. And uh, I think, you know, there's a difference in a marriage. We spend some time usually with someone. You know what you're getting into. The When you join an office... You know, that's not the same thing. There's suddenly a lot of moving parts. And <laughs> yes. Why is she so quiet? Does she not like me? You know, like, yeah. so one of the key things is to hire people that they can be very different. And I like that. And you've had different hygienists in my office. So there's the quiet one and there's the talkative one. But what they need to all have is that what you call authenticity. In our case, it's, you know, that love of the job, love of what they do, that you feel love for people. I mean, we treat people. One of those comments in my, you know, my list of our 10 commandments is, you know, treat people, not procedures. So other dentists talk about that case and they don't use the patient's name. And when we go to dental conferences, oh, I had a really big case today and it was 12 crowns and, you know, I billed this much. And, you know, I don't push whitening on people. I don't push, <laughs> you know, I wait for you to tell me, you know, Dr. Monkey, my teeth aren't straight, are they? I'm like, well, I was waiting for you to say that for the last five years <laughs> so I can sell you this Invisalign. But wait for the patient to do it. Don't be pushing that orthodontic treatment on people that might not want it. Like you, yes. the patient must come first and their needs and their wants, not the dentist needs and wants. And that's a tough one because in dental school, you're learning all these things that you're supposed to carry out on people, but but they don't teach you that 
You're supposed to listen. So listening is the most important yes. thing. And I'm a talker. I joke all the time. But I'm a keen listener, particularly at that first dental visit. I spend an hour with patients. And, you know, they pay a lot of money for it, but they're never complained because other dentists just go right in. All right, okay, well, let's get started today. And they miss getting to know that person and making them comfortable and having them understand that you're out looking out for their best interests and not trying to make a quick buck. Like, there's a lot of money to be made in a, in a service industry like dentistry, but uh, you don't have to be about that. If you do good work for people, you know, they'll tell other people, which is why we say word of mouth. In our practice, we don't advertise. We just, people like Patrick will tell you, oh, go to that guy because it's a fun office and we love this. And yeah, I want they all never, my friends you know, to go. I want, well, there I it want is, you know, it builds on our patients. whole Canada to go our, uh, Well, we Actually, won't maybe have room not, for every I, Canadian, yeah. yes. But, but, you know. I think it's, <laughs> it's also reflect, like, Dr. Manga, Dr. Fett, like, Dr. Pham, hey, so I have great kind. associates. I have great associates. So kind. Oh, and, yeah. and one of the things that I love, which I hadn't really thought until we were just talking, is so much diversity and inclusion, too. And yeah. I, I just kind of realized that maybe that's another reason why I feel so comfortable there. Because yeah. I see myself reflected. It, I see myself. Thank you for, for saying that because that, that is by design, you know? Yeah. The, that hygienist is Chilean and this one's from Ethiopia. Positioned as desired. And there yeah, you there go. it is. You know, <laughs> the front desk, she's Portuguese. And, you know, this one is, you know, it, it's, it's really important, right? I you think know, when, I, like yeah. sometimes you see billboards for Hollywood and, and nothing against white people, but it's all white people. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, I don't yeah. see myself in that, you know? Yeah. Or sometimes um, one of the things that I've loved about the Second City recently the the comedy and improv school is that some of the people in the in the main stage they are Indian they are Asian they are Filipino they are, and that changed that, it wasn't like hundred percent in that my lifetime Second City back when I was, was you know, in my twenties yeah, yeah and the audience is still primarily white that yes. hasn't shifted really yes but there, there's uh like there's African American people yeah. I I would love for there to more to be like more Latino people. But that that's that's going to be you lifting as you me. rise. Eventually, you. yeah, rise yeah, yeah. by by helping others. Yes. So when I see that billboard of the main stage thing, and I see that diversity, I'm like, hey, there's a ticket for me there too. Like I I yeah. could actually be there. You know, I like I kind of see the <laughs> see the path, yeah. and it it seems like insignificant, but it's huge yeah. for for newcomers you know it's it's huge so so i just want to commend you for that now i want to i want to ask you about the entrepreneurial side the the boss side and i'll tell you i'm going to be really honest the only things that i miss about the bank obviously the people because i miss my uh my my colleagues i miss i miss making people laugh but mostly the recurring paycheck every two weeks yeah (laughs) but because the bank had that money. Yeah. Got you weren't going to not get paid. Get yeah, that yeah, money. Get so, the money. And recently, in my years, I was talking to my business partner, Huang, and I'm like, you know what I miss? I miss getting congratulated. <laughs> Being the boss is sometimes a lonely road. It's yes. it's very... And, and as an approval junkie, as, as a man of the people, I love being congratulated. Yeah. I love being recognized. And not all the days are good. And even when they're really good, it's just you tapping yourself yeah. in the back, you know. Yeah. How do you unwind? 
recharge and keep yourself motivated. Yeah. Now that is a tough one. You, you and I are very similar that way, Stefan. Like I also, um, you know, I love helping people, but I also love to uh, get the response. Not always necessarily praise, but just the, I like the feedback from people, Same. you know, and man, when you are alone, you know, running your thing at whatever level, uh, being the boss, you have to get that from yourself and find it in yourself, which is hard when you're used to a certain kind of um, interplay with people and, and it comes naturally um, this love of people. So you get it back, you know, and man, when you're, you're having to be uh, the boss and having to make tough decisions about hiring and firing and how many hours do you work? And, you know, you really did something today the that triangle. I have to tell you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, keep out of that drama triangle, you know. And, you know, to have to keep managing people and doing all that stuff when you just want to have fun with them. and Yeah. But it's not like that. There is something you have to accept, I think, that there is a bit of a hierarchy where there's a boss. because, And it's not better than. It is you're giving direction to. So yes. it's not a better than, and I think my staff realizes that. Yeah, you know, we 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 they respect me, but you know they know that I you know we have a lot of fun together. But when it comes down to it, they're not going to say to me, you know, we're going to work till this time every day, <laughs> and then you know we'll tell you when we want to go home. No, no, you have to set the the pace yes. of the office, and that's a certain amount of responsibility. Being the boss is lonely. For a lot of the time, but really having that creative control over my office, and I say that in the case of my dental office because it's about the music and the artwork, uh, the kind of patients that we are um, kind of um, going for. In Curating of, in many yeah, ways. Yeah, you know, like uh, we have a lot of people who uh, make me happy, um, like yourself, who come in and we can have great conversations so that it is much more than a job and it fulfills my personal desire and goal to, you know, to, to have that job satisfaction where you're dealing with people. So I balance the harsh having to be the one that makes these tough decisions all day. And, you know, all of that goes with being the boss with the pleasure I get from a team of, uh, you know, coworkers that, also enjoy that kind of interaction and the love that I get back from my people. So my patients. So, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a do the hard work here, but expect that the results will give you back something that, um, you know, maybe you lose leaving a job like that where you're yes. working in teams. And I think that's, that's even harder now. I think the generation below me, below you, even the 20 somethings coming up, so many of their jobs are around teams and all the, IT jobs and everything. And I think that this particular year has been very tough for people having to be isolated. Yes. When those people are used to working, you know, in offices that don't look like the kind of offices that were around when I was a kid. They're very open and you, you walk over there and deal with that person and you, and I think, you know, there's a, a great change that sort of happened this year with the pandemic and the, the shutdown that, We'll have a ripple and a lasting effect. I yes. think. I think you know we're going back to some kind of working in pods and in isolation again, which I don't know is real. I don't think it's really human nature. I think that's a, uh, a it's a it's an artificial thing, and we need it right now. And I respect it, but I hope that that will break down and that we'll go back to some sort of face to face, which uh, I gotta say is 
preferable, uh, not just for meetings, just just for most jobs. You you know, we're humans that used to live Social in animals. caves together. You know, we didn't like kind of live in our own separate. You know, it, it it's a it's a very um, troubling thing for me to think that because it's obviously more efficient for the bank and for the business to have people working from home. We don't have to pay the rent anymore. We don't have to pay for those lunches anymore. We don't have to. <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, – and more productivity. I can reach them at 8 o'clock at night now and send an email. And I just think that there's a downside to that, that we're losing a human connection. Uh, connection. And I and I think people, persons like you and I, you know, have felt that pain during this, yes. this pandemic, you know? I want to be everyone's best friend. So when I, when I want to – when I have to make those tough decisions, it really takes a toll on me. And I've just come to, to accept it in many ways. It, it's that self-awareness. Um, Gary V on, on Instagram, Gary Vaynerchuk, who I, who I really like, he says that self-awareness is the greatest gift that you can give yourself. So when I have these days where I, it takes a toll on my sure. energy, on, on these things, sure. I've come to recognize a couple of things that make me come back quicker than if I just let it go. Maybe it'll take a day and a half, maybe it'll take six days with this thing on my mind, you know? And these things are running, meditating, and journaling. Obviously spending time with my wife and my son, but I, that that's more of a constant than I'm I'm grateful for. Yes. And, and and I'm so grateful for the pandemic in that way because I've been able to spend more time with them. What is your equivalent of, of meditating or journaling or or running what do you do to tap into the inside and just flip that negative or hard day to the positive? It just, is it is it art? Yeah, is, for for me, a lot of it is is actually the arts. Music is so critical for me. Uh, you know, people think, you know, why didn't you go into music? And I actually studied music at uh, university level at University of Windsor and got into the School of Music no at McGill way. University what? the same week that I got a letter of acceptance to dental school. So music was that big in my life and remains, you know? I mean, I... What I, instruments? Uh, I played guitar in a band, in a kind of a reggae pop band that was pretty popular. We put out a record and all that when I was at university. What was the name? Uh, the band was called Contradance, which is a, kind of a play on, you know, there was this old sort of square dance sort of Contradance, but we were thinking about the word contra like against you know yeah. and uh and uh it was a kind of uh in the era of like the clash and like you know these groups that were sort of like uh political but you know so we were like that kind of you know MIA kind of group you know we we loved that kind of uh not that sound but that idea of being political but i loved music and it remains uh i realized for me i, I preferred it as a hobby than to be very serious with it. I was playing trombone, um, you know, and that would have been the instrument I would have studied and maybe ended up being a jazz or concert musician. But it is certainly, um, you know, the dedication that that would have taken. I'm not sure I was that guy. I love music for the fun of it and the performance, not necessarily all the practice. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have to kind of know who you are. I think I made the right decision because I've got a dental practice now full of musicians yeah full of Lots entertainment of people yeah you know so many bands come through and actors uh you know that are doing movies i'm like the go-to guy for this because there's this uh side of me that that loves entertainment and loves uh you know uh, music in particular and i think that helps for that career but for me after work uh yeah i've got a, a beautiful 
you know, sound system at home. I've got, uh, you know, a wife who appreciates music and the kids, you know, I've got a six year old that's been playing guitar already since he was four. And, you know, the, the, the little one is, is four now and he loves his percussion. So I think, you know, setting up a life where you have this other thing, and in my case, music and the art collection that we've talked about, you know, those things are critical for balance. You need to know what it is. It's different for everyone. Yes. For a lot of dentists, it's playing golf or going boating. And, you know, that some of these things are very stereotypical. I was never that guy, nor are my associates. We're the, 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 the contra-dental office. We're the ones, <laughs> uh, contra-dentist. Yeah, yeah, you know. We're the ones that, you know, we never go to those golf conventions. We, we're going to see a band, you know, at least Palace down the, see, well, we can't do that right now, but we do a lot of yes. music-related things, art-related things. Took my whole staff to the Art Gallery of Ontario to see a Jean-Michel Basquiat show just so they could learn about the graffiti artists and the history of it. And and they loved seeing this thing that I was giving them as a personal joy because I think part of it was seeing how much their boss, not so much knew about it, but how much joy it was bringing me. It made them see another side of myself. I think it's important to show the people you work with a bit of yourself. You don't need to be an open face, but they need to know what makes you tick. It gives them a different and deeper appreciation of who you are. A hundred percent. I always drop this quote in every single podcast episode, and it's relationships move at the speed of vulnerability. And I saw that Maya Angelou t-shirt on your Instagram. People will forget what you said. They'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. You remember that. And it's at the center of of our speaking with confidence workshops. We always have those two quotes. And that's why I think I love you so much. And word of mouth, because and I love you too, brother. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, go. Yeah, and and it's that I love people who are not one dimensional. And I mean, some people can't really disconnect from their work and, and they are, have that identity so ingrained. It's true. That it's hard. You you got the lawyers, and they're lawyers in the club. They're lawyers in the supermarket. They're lawyers at the Christmas party. They're lawyers in at church. The, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I'm like, fine, dude. Like, if that's cool, and that's your modus operandi, that's your, your defense mechanism, and that, that's your vibe, that's fine. I, I can't. And that really used to get me angry at the bank, because people would be like, well, are you a banker or are you a comedian? I'm like... I'm both. Yeah. And what's wrong with that? And sometimes I would get some comments were like, well, if, if you're doing too much comedy, you know, that may interfere with your banking career. And, and like, they may think that you're not taking your banking career so seriously. Yeah. And I'm like, who cares? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not at the beginning. It really bugged me because yeah. I really wanted to be successful at the job, which I did, yeah. uh, which I did. But then as me and my business partner started to do a lot better, I'm like, you only live once, you know? Yeah. Why am I just putting this this tagline on me? I'm like, I'm a bet. Fine, but I don't want to be that guy who does banking for 50 years and, yeah. and fine. It's so cool if I make it to VP or CEO, whatever. You could see the road in front of you. A hundred percent. And you could say to yourself, and you could see that you could get there yeah. with that hard work, but you, it was maybe almost too predictable. A hundred percent. Too predictable. Yeah. I think because 
I've been in so many environments and so many countries and, and boarding school. And yeah. in many ways, you're Windsor, Ontario, feeling that fish out of water. Now that I have the money and the freedom and the disposable income and time to really pick what I can be and choose and become, I'm not sticking with one. I love many yeah. things, you know, and I'm so happy that I made that decision It, while it may have set me back the first year and eh, financially, yeah. I'm like so happy, like so yeah. fulfilled, have traveled eight countries, hundreds of shows, impacted so many people, um, taught thousands of people how to become funny, confident speakers. That's and, great. And I think we're, you and I have something very clear and, and, and word of mouth in Malpensando, which is you're not in the dentistry business you're in the relationships business of helping people have healthy smiles or or whatever you may want to call it i'm in the relationships business of helping people become confident speakers or funny right. confident speakers i'm i'm not in the in the comedy business i'm in the relationships business and i think that's why people keep coming back Mm -hmm. I've, I've only been doing this for like six years. There's people who've been doing it for 30 years. Why do they keep coming back to us? Because we develop those relationships. Mm. We may not be the best. Who cares? Anybody can teach comedy. Right, right. But they love how they feel yes. when they come to us. And I think that's that's a big difference. I think you, you and your team have been really successful at building long-term dentist patient relationships it's true so what's been your train of thought behind this rethinking and deconstructing that typical dentist patient relationship hmm. yeah i think uh at the core you know you you do have to recognize that uh you are uh, providing a service that uh you know has to fall again under the whole you know medical slash scientific yes. method so you know It doesn't matter what the envelope looks like. Uh, in the end, you know, you have to be a good dentist technically. Yes. You have to have great hygienists that know how to clean teeth, know how to be, uh, um, to, to, ex to, to kind of have their patients, um, get motivated about their health and be a partner in their own health. You have to be able to talk to people. You have to be able to, um, you know, recognize that it is the technical skill and the academic uh, brilliance, but also the other part that I think many dental offices don't have is this other thing about, uh, I guess it's around psychology, about uh, loving people, but thinking about, um, you know, what people's needs are aside from, you know, I want to fix that tooth and I'm worried about my bad breath there's like a much deeper thing we're trying to get to, which is we're trying to establish lifetime relationships. So mm -hmm. you need to, uh, you know, think big picture when you're meeting a new patient and, and let them really understand your philosophy from the start. And that you won't remember maybe, but in that first appointment when we met, uh, even if I've had a cleaning first, but when you came into my chair and we spent an hour and We chat and we get to know each other. We take some x-rays and I'm doing the scientific thing and I'm going through that method um, and I'm doing a proper exam. 
But at the same time, because we give it a lot of time, an hour, I'm also asking you about your life. I'm, yes. I'm letting you know that I care about the whole person. And again, we're treating people, not procedures. So, Everyone feels seen you know, and heard. Yeah, you got to do that. that. That's the difference. And that's the part that I think, uh, again, is not taught in dental school that needs to be a more important part of the curriculum, the, the psychology behind it, the understanding um, human nature and respecting that as and, and putting it at the same level as the it's you know a filling and this is how you do it and these are the things that you need to do to be preventive well how about big picture um, you know not that we need to be psychiatrists but you know how do you motivate someone about their health when they're depressed how do you make somebody who's anxious about the dentist you know listen to all this stuff about here's how you brush and blah 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 when they're scared in the chair you need to spend the time to break yeah. down the anxiety and then a relationship is formed and then you can really do things and you know i i think that part is just not emphasized enough i mean that is what makes us different and that's what i'm proud of about our office we for the third time we treat people not procedures the people part is the key. A hundred percent. And and going back to, to what we were saying, you guys have that, you, you check that box of professional, you do the job, but then it's the bonus, the cherry on top where you make everyone feel seen and heard. Well, and thanks, I know because I heard it in the Christmas off, in the Christmas party that uh, Marcela even helped one patient discover or, or that yeah. he had cancer or potential potential cancer. And, oh, and she's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to be good at what you do, which she is, and you have to care. Yes. Care enough to go, you know, Dr. Monk, I know you're busy in that other room, but can you take off your gloves, you know, clean your take the time to put on your new scrubs and go in this room because you need to see this person. I think there's a problem. And I mean... You know, you're going to say everyone would do that, but that's not true. A lot of people are like, well, it looks okay. Or, you know, that's not my job to investigate that. You know, if you care about people, you know, you, you want to investigate and make sure that they're going to stay healthy. And she is, you know, emblemic of that, that kind of like philosophy in our office that you put people first. And so her job is to be a hygienist and clean teeth. But there she is, you know diagnosing oral cancer you know it's like you know because she had a hunch she knows what normal is and this just didn't look normal and it was niggling her and so she brings a dentist over and you know that's that's really what you're supposed to do but not everybody does that because they don't it's care the same enough, as you know? tell the truth that's yeah, what yeah, everyone's exactly. supposed to do but not a, yeah, it's so yeah, easy yeah. yet it's hard yeah you know what yeah. i mean and going back to it's just Dr. Manga, Dr. Pham, uh, Sonia, yeah, every, every, everyone who's been there has this common denominator where they're kind and, and, and they don't want to go. I couldn't believe it how they were crying. Like the, uh, she was yeah. crying at the Christmas party because she didn't, I'm yeah. like, is this, what's going on? Is this like a, like a court order that she has to leave? What's going yeah. And, and it was it was incredible, and thanks. It's because you know we create a kind of a family vibe. Yes. So it's like I'm leaving my family. You know, she's got her totally. family at home. She has her relationships, but we, you know, we have this work family, and uh, I don't think every office is like that. But we really 
uh, strive hard to sort of, you know, make it a family vibe. And you can kind of take the pieces and say, okay, well, you're the boss, so I'm kind of like the papa, you know, big papi, you know, and then, you know, <laughs> I love it when you call me big papi, you know. And, uh, you know, I think when you set up a situation that uh, you respect people on that level, uh, it's like family, a second family you get that kind of longevity, you know, like, uh, it's, it's about that, you know, it's not that hard, but as you would say, you have to be authentic. You can't yes. make that up. You can't. Authenticity uh, over perfection. Yeah. You know, yeah. You've been doing this for over two decades. Yeah. And what would you tell yourself to, to the young Kmon, to the young Kenneth? What advice would you give yourself that you've learned over the years? Is it don't take things too seriously? Don't take yourself too seriously? Is it uh, stop caring about what people say? What advice would you give your your 20-year-old self? Yeah, that last thing, you know, stop worrying about what people say. For me personally, I think you and I are the same. We're, we, we, we really feed off people. So I think as I got older, that starts to, you know, like water off a duck's back. I don't really care what they think. I'm following my own path. It's clear now. But I think 20 years ago, I was very concerned about, you know, uh, you know, what do people think and, uh, and what kind of office should I have that's, you know, going to be popular or what, you know, what, you know, what, what should I do to, you know, be like, you know, McDentist, like McDonald's, you know, uh, I think that was kind of what we thought or certainly my generation thought coming out of dental school there's a way that you should be kind of music you should play and I worked as an associate for the first you know four or five years in an office that was like that very generic and uh and I think we think that we should do that because that's supposed to be the pattern that brings success like like the card looks like this the music should sound like that uh there's a certain clinical look and I learned very quickly that, uh, for starters, I wasn't happy there. I wasn't getting job satisfaction. I also learned that, you know, the, the best way to enjoy a job is, as I'm saying, to, you know, make the environment an environment that you love first. So I would say to my younger self, you know, I wish from the start you had recognized that you should put, you know, your own job satisfaction first and not worry about the, the the saying that we all hear at school, you know, the customer is always right or the patient should come first. <laughs> no, actually, actually, you should put your desires, your vision of your business first and, and care about that first. Like, I set the hours that make me happy and are going to be good for my family life. Not, I'm following the patients, else I'd be working till 10 o'clock at night like I did when I came out of school. Because, you know, the patient is always right and do what they... No, you have to be happy. If you're working at 10 o'clock at night and you're clearly not happy, people are going to feel that. Yes. And you're, you're just... That office is like, I'm never going back there again. They were blah, blah, blah. The dentist needs to put themselves first. Then my staff comes second. So if they don't want to stay till blah, blah, blah time, that decision should be coming ahead of the patients. And don't get me wrong. I love my patients. Love them all. <laughs> But you got to work in an envelope that comes down from your vision. Your vision has to be what leads. 
and then your staff comes next. And then the vision the patient, triangle. The vision Not triangle. Not the drama triangle. All right, I like that. Triangle. I like that. Although it was, you know, my idea, really. Even though you, <laughs> you verbalized it, I'm going to still say that's yeah. my... I'll give you 3% on everything. But, you know, um, so I, I think, you know, I don't want people to get, get twisted about that. I love my patients, but it's the dentist who sets the tone or yeah. the owner and then their staff comes next in terms of needs and then the patients and then the patients are happy because 100%. they're working under that umbrella of happiness. My God, you, can't if you do it the other way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise like, you can't perform. It's like, I was miserable towards the last couple months and years at the bank. And in many ways I, I, I let myself get to there, but, it was time how, to go. It was time how, to go. How was I going to perform the best in my at my bank responsibilities if I was miserable? So you have to pay yourself first. Yes. It's like in finance. Pay yourself first. What did James Brown say? Paid the cost to be the boss. <laughs> there you I'm go. I'm saying, you know? 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, you have to be happy. That'll also reflect on your staff. Yes. If you're in a horrible mood, everyone's going to be in a horrible mood too. And that'll trickle down. Does. I want to say this, and then I'm going to ask you the sam- the champagne question, which is our last question for all of our guests. So before I forget, it always surprises me every time I walk into Word of Mouth. And people are going to think that the, that the Dr. Montague sponsored this episode, but it's, it always surprises me, especially last time. I walked in with a mask, obviously, because of COVID and everything. And I was even with my wife and, and Liam. And... We just had to, I wanted to get my wife to, to be a patient. At, I want everyone, my whole family. Yeah, I, I appreciate want it. I appreciate everyone it. to come from Costa Rica and Peru to just be a patient. And then they were like, they, you could only see my eyes. And Dr. Pham was like, oh my God, how's Liam? How are you? How's, hi, Narzali. How is the shows? And I'm like, how does she know it's, it's me, you know? And even when I don't, when it, it's pre-COVID, they it's almost like they i haven't seen you in six months probably because it sometimes it's three months sometimes it's six months but it's like we never stopped seeing each other it and i'm like do they have like a morning meeting about every (laughs) single well we do have a morning meeting but and we do but we don't necessarily discuss all those things but what the morning meeting does is it sets the tone and you see the name and so we're not sitting at the morning meeting going, yeah, you know, well, that's Stefan I Remember, he has a <laughs> new baby. And no, we don't do all that. Although when you see the picture, we have the patient's picture beside their name. And, you know, you have a very kind of elegant program that sort of shows, you know, with this, this software kind of who's coming. And you see their face. And again, we're people first. So it's making Dr. Pham think about you in her subconscious. And she knows you because she met you. And... You know, because she cares, she's remembering these things. But if you don't have that morning meeting, then it's just like, oh, oh, that person's here. And oh, that like, but when you had time to have the thing marinate over your day, yeah. it is really important it's, to sort of like map it out in the morning. You know? I just yeah. have never experienced that with any uh, other business. And she cares. She a, cares about A hundred percent. She cares. Every, everyone cares. You could, you could. T- yeah. It it shows a mile away. Yeah. You it, don't you don't last in our office if you don't care because you know again with the within the staff you be the misfit think, yeah and you know nobody wants to be the misfit we've been through that it's like <laughs> it, it doesn't 
work for your ego to be sort of like, why are these people all like, you know, so that, that it really feels very obvious when you've got someone on board that isn't part of that. And we've experienced that. And usually it's not someone that you have to fire. They usually leave on their own because you know, they're, they're not part of the family. They know it, you know? Yeah. I think I read in, in, in a book that one of the best ways to hire people and fire people is through core values. Yes. And a lot of these people just leave because they don't find themselves being comfortable in a specific culture that really lives and breathes their core values. And also, for the people who have never been there, um, <laughs> when they ask these questions, and like Dr. Pham, it doesn't appear or look fake. It's actually like they care. Yeah, she and, does. And, I can tell you. Yeah, 100%. But you know it. You felt it. Yeah. 100%. And so now we're here at the at the, at the the end of this uh, life-changing interview, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And we're here at the, at the champagne question, which is, if we were to meet a year from now with a bottle of champagne, this is 2022, what are we celebrating in Kenneth Montague's life? Wow. The champagne question it is. Um, I think that... In a year from now, I'd love to, and, I, and that ties on to that last point, I'd love to be able to spend the, that extra time that you might get uh, with my boys, with my kids, you know, growing up, which uh, it's already uh, a priority, obviously. And you know that as a father of a young child, it just changes. You just want to spend time with them. But being an older dad has its challenges, as I've said. And I think you have to spend a little more time, not not less. You have to map out more time in your obviously busier life as you're older. You have to make that time. So I would say, yeah, a year from now, it'd be wonderful to say, yeah, and I, you know, I took that day off work, that extra day now, and I I spend it, you know, with my kids, or I pick them up, I you know, after school, and we do blah blah. I mean, I think one of the things that you know I should mention is. On top of all I said about the pyramids and everything, family's still first. Family's first over mm-hmm. over career, over family is um, what made me who I am. You know, I talked about uh, my immigrant parents, but, you know, they, they made family first. They left, you know, their, their country and, and, and probably a very predictable life, uh, probably a very good life in Jamaica. Uh, and came here not knowing anything and facing a lot of tough times and a lot of uh, discrimination because they did it for their kids. They knew that education for their kids would be better here, you know? And so I have that in my head as well. I think that, you know, a year from now, I'd like to be able to to say that, you know, I'm on that track of being, you know, the best father I can be by maybe, you know, uh, giving a little more time, taking a little bit away from that that work that I love, but is so much of my life and give a little bit more of that time. So this isn't about money. This isn't about money. Else I'd be like, a year from now, I want to open that second <laughs> office. Like, no, yeah. no, no. I have everything that I love and need in my one you office. You hit that sweet spot. It, it's great. You know, I don't need to. What I need is actually to make sure that it keeps running smoothly in the moments that I'm not there and then spend that extra time with the fam. I mean, that would be probably something that other people wouldn't even notice, 
but for me personally would be a win, you know, to like uh, be able to keep that going with that philosophy without me having to be there as much and keep this going with me being a little more present. That would be, that would be the, yeah. The champagne, you know? Yeah. Thank you very much, man. I gotta say, man, I, you know, we, we have much more than a, you know, a dentist patient relationship. The thing that we really aren't talking about though, you've hinted at it a few times is, you know, we brought you on board, we being our staff, uh, and it was them. They were like, oh, he's so funny. And did you see this thing on, you know, Instagram with Stefan? <laughs> like, and, you know, they were like, you know, we should have him as our entertainment this year, you know. So we brought you on board for our annual holiday party, which you saw is a real love-in, you know. Yes. And, uh, and you did not disappoint. It was great. I mean, people still talk about that night. And, again, we always – do something with one of our longtime patients. Go to their restaurant is typically the thing. But sometimes, you know, we change it up. We'll, you know, go to a concert. or And in this case, you coming to my home, actually, and bringing the staff in and having this very intimate night with uh, a lot of jokes. It was a very memorable event. Yes. Really, I think it, it, it really bonded us in a deeper way, too. So that was a great thing. So I, I thank you for uh, giving us that, too, Stefan. Yeah, it meant, it meant the world to me because, again, it is hard to feel at home when you're away from home, you know? Yeah. And it's these little and, – and I've all, I've said this in past episodes where for the first time since I've had – I married my wife and, and we have Liam now. This feels like home, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and it's rare when you're in these little spots or parties or meetups or comedy shows, whatever you may want to call it, where you're just like, this is my tribe, you know? Yeah. And that's how it felt. So <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this interview for, for months, maybe years. Yeah. Come on, man. This was the the Stefan Dyer podcast. Kenneth Montague and Stefan Dyer. See you later. Ciao, ciao. Thank you, brother. Gracias por escuchar el Stefan Dyer podcast. Arrivederci, my people.